what are just kind of like things that people are studying right now that you're very excited about? Now, there was a lot of excitement and my group is very involved in this epigenetics. So we were talking about this strand of DNA being properly packaged. Co-director of the Rochester Aging Research Center. She has published over 100 publications about longevity, sirtuins and aging. Vera Gorbanova, who's an endowed professor of biology and medicine at the University of Rochester in New York. Her research is focused on understanding the mechanisms of longevity and genome stability and on the studies of exceptionally long-lived mammals. You know, what negatively affects epigenome structures? You know, is it like diet, poor sleep, you know, what? DNA replication. Every time you replicate DNA, you have to open it up and put it back together. Every time a gene is activated to make a protein, it needs to be also opened up. You know, what does gene therapy look like? And then also, what are the risks that you mentioned? Well, gene therapy, it's like you would take like a nanoparticle that would have a gene, sirtuin 6 gene in it, and then it goes into your body and it starts making sirtuin 6 Do you think humans will ever figure out how to live forever? Uh, you know, forever is a <laughs> very heavy <laughs> word. Um, I don't think we are there yet or will be in the any foreseeable future. Uh, but I think what we can do is uh, to make people live longer and healthier, which is also extremely important. Who wants to live longer and uh, be frail and uh, decrepit? Uh, so the primary goal is to reduce um, sickness, uh, to make people live healthier for as long as possible. Mm, I see. So, you know, I, I've been hearing a lot about the longevity space. You know, you see a lot of the um, gurus kind of shine in the forefront now. And it's it's becoming a very big topic. You know, what do you think the study of longevity will look like in, let's say, the next decade? Well, that's a good question. Uh, things are changing very rapidly. Uh, and uh, right now we have some treatments that we can extend lifespan of various model laboratory organisms. And the next step will be taking these treatments and uh, selecting those that are safe and effective in humans and then starting trials in, in humans. Uh, so that's what I think the landscape where we are going, uh, shifting now to uh, taking some of the discoveries to practice and of course we there is a lot more in terms of research that needs to be done we we have some ways uh, of extending lifespan um, but there is a lot that we don't yet understand uh, so there is a lot going on in understanding really the drivers of aging process and how we can um, target them mm -hmm. yeah that makes a lot of sense you know there's still a lot of questions to be answered. So what are some of the main ones that, you know, scientists are still trying to figure out, they're scratching their head, but if we really figure it out, it's going to make a huge impact in long, in longevity research. Well, so, you know, to put it in simple terms, because this is a very serious scientific question, right? Because there are many things we don't understand yet. Um, but let's say many things go wrong as we age. You know, we all know it, you know, people can age very differently. Somebody has a heart problem, somebody has a diabetes, somebody develops a dementia. 
Um, so we all age differently and different system may cave in, um, but what's the underlying process? Because we all, even though we age very differently at different rates, but we kind of all end up in the same place. <laughs> and at about the same time, I mean, still it could be plus minus almost 40 years, right? If you think from people dying in their 60s to some people surviving to like hundreds. Um, but still there are also similarities. So we want to find the underlying process that drives all of these pathologies as we get older. And like, we know some things, we, it's not like people have many, maybe multiple ideas about it, but uh, which one is the most important? Is there one process that like, causes sort of kind of a central clock that ticks and then other things start to fall apart. Um, and then if there is such one process, if we try to slow it down or even reverse it, will it reverse, <laughs> you know, other diseases uh, of age? Uh, so that's really the biggest challenge. And um, scientists already discovered a number of things, like for example, um, DNA in the cell. So our genetic information, it accumulates mutations as we get older um, and mutations are bad, but then there is also additional layer here because DNA, you know, it's this um, very long linear molecule, like a thread and it's very long in every cell. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, very, very you know, several feet of this DNA, and it needs to be packaged very neatly so that it's always accessible. And this packaging also gets messed up as we get older. And that by itself may also cause problems because cell can no longer function properly if this, you know, instruction manual is no longer as accessible as it should be. So there are these various biological processes that are suspect right now and we are trying to figure out okay which one or a combination of some which one should we target for the most clinical benefit mm -hmm. i see yeah that makes a lot of sense there's a lot of different things that people are researching such as you know the clock like you mentioned such as you know how people age and how different people age and then also um the dna and how it can be structured properly. So um, out of all of those, are there areas where it's most studied, you know, by many researchers because maybe they feel confidence that one or, you know, are researchers just kind of studying all of them, you know, kind of relatively equally? Yeah, well, people study all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and which is really nice. We need more, more people in this field. <laughs> it is, you know, very diverse questions. Uh, we know probably a bit more about these are so-called nutrient sensing pathways. Mm. Uh, and uh, these are the signaling pathways within the cell that respond to nutrients. So like there is food, you, know, you eat a hamburger, and then there are certain processes within cells that start to respond to it. Uh, so it was discovered early on um, that altering these processes can slow down aging. And it was very well worked out using model organisms such as fruit fly or worms, C. elegans. So you can uh, perturb those nutrient sensing pathways 
and then these are organisms will live longer. So we kind of understand more about that. Um, but when it's time to translate it into human health, it, there's still lots of questions because that's where the idea of color restriction came from, which you mm -hmm. probably heard about. Uh, that this is one uh, intervention that extends lifespan in variety of model organisms, mm. in flies, in mice. You restrict their diet and they live longer, uh, even significantly longer. Um, but for humans, it's still an open question. <laughs> is it going to mm. have the same effect? Uh, it was tried on monkeys, and uh, monkeys live for a long time. I mean, not as long as humans, but still like 30 years. Um, and the results were not clear cut. So even in monkeys, the effect of color restriction, there were some benefits, but they were not as dramatic as in flies, for example, or mice, uh, because primates may be somewhat different. Mm. <laughs> so even though we understand a lot how these pathways, we can tweak them and make flies live like two times longer. Mm. Um, it's not entirely clear that we can do the same thing in a mammalian organism. Mm. Is it safer, you know, like when you're uh, in the forefront of research, right? You kind of have choices of what to do. It's like, okay, do I eat less and be in a caloric deficit or do I maintain my current calories or do I eat more? You know, and it's, I know it's not clear, but would it be safer just looking at you know, the studies with uh, animals, is it safer to say, okay, well, maybe I'm just going to hedge and I'm going to say I'm going to be in a caloric deficit until we figure out a little bit more about, uh, you know, the nutrient sensing pathways? Well, you know, I, I think it's good not to overeat, at mm. least with respect to humans. We know that often the problem is people just eat too much and mm. not very healthy. So I would definitely encourage everyone to maintain healthy diet and not to overeat. Mm. And that is, I think we are all capable of doing it. Uh, restricting the diet, you know, especially dramatically restricting the way it was done for mice, like 30%, even 20%. Mm. It is very difficult for human to sustain it. Mm. Uh, and it can could make people very unhappy if they not just don't overeat, like, okay, you feel you've had enough, so stop now. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but it's really like you have to go hungry, you know, mm -hmm. if it's 30% restriction. It's very severe. Um, so I, I would say uh, that realistically, it's not possible for an average person who is, doesn't really want to dedicate their entire life <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, to this so I, I don't even think it, it's a question you know we can't do it there were studies people were very devoted to the idea of color restriction and they would restrict themselves but then when it was calculated like what level people can do you know if they have free access to refrigerator mm -hmm. <laughs> people can do about 10 percent mm -hmm. I mean, more than that it's like you have to be put in prison <laughs> <laughs> right. I see. You have to be forced. You so, have to be forced, right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think this is very practical way uh, mm -hmm. of doing it, and uh, it would make people very unhappy. And at this point, we don't even know if it's necessary. Right. So I think sort of general recommendation would be, okay, just like go light, you know, don't, don't overstuff yourself. 
but I would not recommend people to you know practice thirty percent color restriction. It's it's very difficult, and I think that would lead to a lot of frustration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I've I've been in um, you know, uh, the health and wellness space for quite a while now, ten years. I love uh, weightlifting, and mm -hmm. that's one thing I noticed is if I restrict myself too much, I might do it for a period of time. Mm -hmm. But then eventually I would want to splurge, you know, yes. and, <laughs> yeah. and so like, I, then I start overeating, I have these cheat meals and then like, you know, it's just like this yo-yo effect, you know, mm -hmm. it's like I splurge, I overeat and then I go back to it and then I would want to splurge again. So it, you know, I learned to just kind of have a optimal level of where I don't go too far in, uh, in either spectrum. Yes, and that may be, you know, what works for you may be the best. Um, there is also another concept of intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. which is much easier for people because as you just said, right, it, it's okay. Like you, I'm, you can skip a day even, mm -hmm. but then if the next day you eat as much as you want, so that makes people healthy. I mean, not healthy, but at least happy and content, mm -hmm. you know, their life. Um, so that's an alternative strategy, and it was tried also on laboratory organisms, and it does uh, bring benefit. Uh, there is life ext extension with intermittent fasting, sometimes just as good as with um, sustained color restriction. Um, whether the same concepts can be equally applied to people, we just don't really know. I don't think there were large enough trials mm -hmm. uh, because. Always when it comes to people, it's a question by how much you restrict and, and how strict you're going to be. Because if you tell, okay, people have to fast completely for a day, um, then it's just harder to recruit enough people to the study. Mm -hmm. So there were protocols, for example, people would eat just a salad for a day. And then the outcome of that study was that the, although there was some benefit, but it wasn't as strong as what's observed in mice that uh, fasted completely for a day. But okay, that's no surprise. People were munching on <laughs> So we really don't know yet. But I would say perhaps if for someone who can tolerate intermittent fasting, that's a viable alternative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've been doing intermittent fasting for over five, six years. And I found for myself, it works really well. I know some people have tried it in my life and it doesn't really work for them. So I do agree with you. It's a matter of finding, you know, what works. So as far as intermittent fasting, is there an optimal sort of hours of fasting at like 16, eight, the, tr the traditional 16, eight, or is there anything better out there? Yeah. So that's also, you know, another topic <laughs> for discussion uh, because in the past uh, people thought that calorie is what's most important and like, okay, you can choose whatever your target calorie number and it doesn't matter when you eat. Uh, but recently we started learning that this is not true. It's very important when you eat. Mm. Um, and there are all kinds of ideas. Like some people would say, okay, I'm skipping breakfast. Somebody else is skipping supper. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so still, we don't really have a controlled study large enough to see what is best. Uh, but right now, again, based on mouse studies mostly, uh, what can be said that it's important not to eat during uh, the nighttime or at least when it's dark, 
because our circadian rhythm is extremely important. Uh, and combining uh, maybe very mild color restriction with also eating at the right time of day, which would be anywhere, you know, during daytime, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. has much greater benefit than either one of these interventions taken alone. Whether to skip breakfast or supper, you know, there is really no scientific evidence to say which is preferable. Mm -hmm. uh, some people were very quick to start skipping breakfast just because it's easier. <laughs> mm -hmm. People uh, also culturally, I think in the United States, people often don't eat breakfast. They just mm -hmm. jump, you know, with a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there, there is some epidemiological evidence that it's not that good, that actually you maybe you want to eat breakfast, but then don't eat heavy dinner. Uh, so, you know, lots of uh, ideas, but there is really not enough evidence for either one of them. Mm -hmm. So again, I would say whatever works uh, for different people uh, to choose um, a regimen to just sort of minimize um, the time span when you eat. Mm -hmm. you know, don't eat too early in the morning. Don't eat too late at night. So I think breakfast at a reasonable time is okay if it's, again, not at 6 a.m., but mm -hmm. as late as it fits your schedule. And then no very late dinners. Better to finish your meals while it's still light outside. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I do adhere to that. You know, for me, um, I've tried a few things. You know, I've tried uh, three meals that, you know, within two, uh, the window, eight hour window. I've tried two meals and then I've tried one meal <laughs> to the extreme. Actually, the one meal I did in like an hour, two hours, and that was too extreme for me. Mm -hmm. And so I found that my optimal level was within eight hours, kind of like um, to your point during waking hours. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's easier for me to just get breakfast and go for the lunch and the dinner. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that as long as you don't eat too early, too late. And is there any research? I've, I've heard that um, if you eat too close to your bedtime, you know, um, to give a few uh, hours of fasting or not eating anything before bedtime to enhance sleep. Um, are, are you aware of any of uh, studies? Yeah, so there, there is, a, I think there is enough evidence to say that eating uh, very late and close to your bedtime has lots of health uh, problems with it. Mm -hmm. uh, even, you know, besides longevity, you know, people get uh, like heartburn and reflux. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, I think in terms of blood sugar control, it's not optimal to eat very late. So there is lo lots of reasons to not to eat late at night. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, for you, are you uh, doing intermittent fasting? What's kind of like your regimen? Well, um, you know, for some time I was, um, again, it's it just the way my schedule worked. Uh, I was not eating lunch because I would come to work and just work my day and then come home and eat dinner. And it would be kind of disruptive for my work schedule to have a mm. big lunch in the middle of the day. And I pretty much maintained the same routine that I eat breakfast and a very light snack uh, in the middle of the day and then I eat dinner. And I'm trying to eat breakfast not early and dinner not late. Yeah, awesome. So um, besides 
you know, uh, time restriction, are there any other things that are being studied um, for, you know, uh, working with the nutrient sensing pathways and altering it? Um, well, I think these are currently two major, you know, calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. and the time restriction. So that's probably the most we learned. Uh, of course, you can pharmacologically <laughs> manipulate those pathways. And uh, one intervention that was very consistently showing benefits in model organisms is rapamycin, uh, which is inhibitor of mTOR signaling. And it does extend lifespan uh, in mice and flies. Um, in humans, there are clinical trials going on with different results. Um, there was a trial looking at aging of immune system and from a small uh, trial, it seemed that it gave benefit. Uh, people, their immune response was getting better, but then for in a larger trial, it didn't replicate. So we still don't know. Um, Rapamycin is not an entirely benign substance, and this is why you know it's not it's not an over-the-counter thing. Uh, people do develop certain side effects from it. Uh, so again, it's not something that they think people should all jump on, start taking. People also try to come up with a regimen that is, uh, you know, the best uh, because rapamycin inhibits proliferation of cells. And if you're thinking about various processes in the body where you need cell proliferation, you don't just inhibit. Uh, so people come up with ideas, okay, like you take it maybe once a week uh, and then you let your body recover and then you take it. So, so there are all sorts of protocols, but again, we don't have one you know, evidence-based regimen that we know works very well. And people get all sorts of side effects like mouth sores and other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I noticed that, I mean, we, we, there's still so much that we don't know. What are kind of like the things preventing us from not knowing, you know, is it like, there's not enough patients volunteering to be in these studies? Is it not enough funding? Is it just time? You know, the more we study this over a long period of time, we're going to figure it out eventually. Like, what are some some of the barriers you know that are preventing us from reaching all these discoveries? Well, it, it's a very difficult problem. First of all, I think that's what makes it not so fast mm -hmm. <laughs> in biology. Things you know often take time. It's incremental process. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, we need more, we need more funds. We we need more people in this field. And experiments are getting more and more expensive because if you're thinking now about a long-term study with humans or with mice, um, yeah, it, it all costs money. Uh, so finding is important. Um, getting volunteers, yes, I mean, that's also um, difficult. And, uh, you know, looking for strategies or like treatments against aging, um, there are also sort of policy making issues that slow it down because if you are looking for a treatment for a disease and there is a very clear outcome um, and you can show, okay, the drug improves outcome and then 
um, FDA would recognize it and insurance would start paying for this drug so that incentivizes uh, pharma industry. But with aging, it's more difficult because if your outcome like is what the person lived <laughs> two years longer or like some biomarkers didn't change as fast, it's not clear whether insurance would even agree to reimburse it if it's, if it's an expensive treatment. Mm. Um, and that makes pharma less interested <laughs> mm. uh, in pursuing it. So it's more, I think right now, it's still more within academic research because here okay, we can get taxpayers' money to develop this. And then if it really works, then the hope is, well, if then the government would say, okay, we want uh, to re reimburse people for taking it because then everybody's healthy. At yeah. that point, perhaps pharma would also be interested, but right now, not yet. Right. Yeah, there's there's no profit incentive. Yes. Then. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how that works. So um, you mentioned the length of a study. You know, how, I mean, you know, I think uh, just not being able to I mean, you probably wouldn't be able to study someone for the whole, their whole life, right? Because it's just too long. What's kind of like the optimal amount of time um, for a study? If you're talking about human study, for mice, yeah. well, it typically takes three years mm -hmm. uh, if you want to really see how they all age and die. Uh, for humans, yeah, that's a problem. We live very long. <laughs> uh, and uh, it makes studies very difficult because it may be, well, lifetime of a researcher um, but a, a big progress in this area was achieved when people developed biomarkers uh, those biomarkers are not perfect yet so it, it's a big effort to improve them and develop better ones but at least we can somehow measure aging process and say okay these people you know maybe they aged the aging slowed temporarily when they were on the treatment uh, but still, that takes time. Uh, so I would say one year would be a minimum. <laughs> you know, maybe six months. So there are some studies with six months, but some sometimes it's inconclusive. Mm -hmm. So I would say at least a year is needed. Right. At the Ideally minimum. longer, right? But then yeah. get into, you know, these very long studies. Mm -hmm. I see. So... What are some of the current, I mean, you're in the forefront of the longevity research. Um, what are just kind of like things that people are studying right now that you're very excited about? You know, there's some promising results and people are excited, you know, like what's kind of making the buzz currently? Well, there are all kinds of ideas. <laughs> You know, there was a lot of excitement and my group is very involved in this, uh, in epigenetics. So we were talking about the strand of DNA being properly packaged. Um, and that seems to be maybe the underlying cause of aging because if uh, this code for life is now becomes inaccessible or messed up. So that may explain uh, loss of functionality in tissues and, you know, multiple, on multiple systems level. So there was, um, you know, the, this realization is kind of becoming more generally accepted that um, loss of epigenome structure and stability may be the underlying cause of aging. 
And then, okay, how do we address it? Uh, so one way of dealing with it uh, was to, uh, you know, apply what's called partial reprogramming. I don't know if you've heard this mm -hmm. term. Um, so basically, the idea is kind of old because <laughs> evolution has used it. Um, like every time a new child is born, the child is born young, right? zero age. The child is not born with the age of their parents. <laughs> and why does it happen? Because you would think, well, you take a cell from mother and father and make a child. So why the child is young? Because they all both had old cells. They're, even the eggs and sperm were uh, around for a while before they conceived the child. Um, and the secret is that there is some process of rejuvenation that is happening very early during development or during you know, the formation of the uh, egg. There is some kind of rejuvenation during this process that rewires everything, the DNA, everything is rewired and now you start from new. Uh, so the idea was how can we use this process and now apply not to the eggs, but apply it to our somatic tissue, to an adult tissue, can we kind of use the same strategy, whatever rejuvenates a newborn child or a fetus uh, and apply it to our somatic body. And the idea was that there are transcription factors, they are called pluripotency factors uh, that were discovered uh, some years ago that if you active, these transcription factors are activated in early development in the embryo. And if we take these factors and put them into like an old cell, you take a skin cell, you put these factors in it, you can make an embryonic cell. So it turns back the clock, uh, but you don't want to turn it back too much, right? We want to be ourselves. We don't want to become some embryonic mass. <laughs> and, and that was the biggest challenge because if you drive these factors full force, Mm -hmm. It just makes your cell, you know, back to the embryo, and we don't want that. Uh, so here is that this is would be reprogramming, but you can do it just a little bit partially, and this is partial reprogramming. And it had some success. So you can put these factors in like the whole mouse, turn them on, and some mice will die because they reprogram too much. They become mm -hmm. kind of an embryonic body. The tissues don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but some mice will survive and those mice can actually be rejuvenated. Mm. So that was a, a breakthrough because you can now actually take this evolutionary force of rejuvenation that we all use, but we give it to our next generation, not to ourselves, mm -hmm. and then somehow apply it to somatic body. Uh, but it, it's very far from being practical because, yeah, as I said, like many mice die. <laughs> you have to give it just enough. Mm. Uh, but it just, it's a concept. So at least, you know, it's possible to turn back the clock. It's possible to rewire epigenome. Uh, so something that we are studying is how to do it very mildly and safely. And not necessarily by using these pluripotency factors because they are too strong. They can turn you back into an embryo and you don't want that mm -hmm. because really embryonic undifferentiated cell within 
the human body, it, it's it's cancer, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to turn yourself into a tumor. You want to just rejuvenate very slightly. And so that's why we don't want to use pluripotency factors. We want to use some other factors, but that can um, sort of fix the DNA a little bit without turning us into an embryo uh, or into a tumor, which is even worse. Um, so one of such factors is called sirtuin 6 uh, it, It's a protein that deals with DNA packaging. So it can come back, package it. You know, when it all unravels, it can come back and package it again. Uh, so we are studying this sirtuin 6 um, we know that if you put an extra copy of it into mice, they live longer and it's mm. safe. They don't turn into tumors. Nothing bad happens to them. Uh, so now we are looking at various ways like gene therapies, how we can enhance it. Uh, also pharmacological ways to upregulate, to, to turn it on a little bit more. And um, uh, one uh, treatment that we are very excited about, uh, which is very safe, so I have no problems recommending it to people. Uh, we found that seaweed has a mm -hmm. uh, molecule in it that can activate sirtuin 6, mm. um, which may have something to do with why people in Asia, or, you know, Japan, South Korea, people live longer. They eat a lot of seaweed. Mm. At least I could say, well, there is no harm in eating seaweed. Right. <laughs> uh, and we are now trying to kind of understand how this molecule works. How can we make it work even stronger? Mm -hmm. And uh, we also now looking to maybe do a more controlled clinical study with people. We would give them seaweed, see how their bi aging biomarkers change. Mm. Wow. So what? Uh, so seaweed helps turn on sirtuin-6. Yes. Um, and that will help, you know, with keeping epigen uh, epigenome structures and repackaging. So are there any other foods? You know, I can hear some people <laughs> saying, ooh, seaweed. Um, <laughs> any other uh, <laughs> foods like seaweed that could help turn that on? <laughs> uh, you know, that particular molecule, it's called fucoidin, is mm. mainly in seaweed, in brown mm. seaweed. Uh, so it's not the one that is a sushi wrapper, but this, <laughs> you know, seaweed that people make soup with it or stew. Mm -hmm. um, Kelp, so kelp is in a species of brown seaweed and has a lot of fucoidin. Uh, now, there are other foods that are associated with longevity benefits and not, not because of sirtuin uh, 6 necessarily, but, um, you know, people uh, studied the effects of uh, blueberries, uh, other wild berries. Mm. In general, they, they have um, molecules that seem to be beneficial, inducing various uh, beneficial effects. Um, so that's, I, I think, again, you can't go wrong with eating blueberry. <laughs> mm, right. So seaweed, um, is there something special about seaweed? Is it because it's under the sea or, you know, um, there's more good bacteria because it's under the sea? Like what, 
why seaweed in particular? Well, we don't know why uh, it, it mm. makes this uh, molecule that we see very strongly activates sirtuin 6 and sirtuin 6 we want to activate because it's mm. linked to longevity. Now, why exactly is it doing it? We're trying to understand it more from you know perspective of biophysics and biochemistry, understand how that happens. Um, so we don't have a full picture yet, but uh, sort of why seaweed has such benefits? Like, we don't know, it may be just random. It mm -hmm. Right. Is it something that could be made in a lab, you know, like uh, for drugs or like a supplement that people take? Uh, it could be. It's easy and cheaper right now to just get it from the sea. Mm. Uh, but, you know, it could possibly be made in the lab. Got it. Okay. So um, why, you know, you mentioned epigenome structures. Why does, or what affects it? You know, what negatively affects epigenome structures? You know, is it like diet, poor sleep? You know, what, how can people prevent? Oh, everything, you know, life affects it. <laughs> because uh, our cell goes through rounds of um, DNA replication. Every time you replicate DNA, you have to open it up and put it back together. Um, every time a gene is activated to make a protein, it needs to be also opened up. So there is a lot going on. So it's just the effect of life. Of course, um, you know, various unhealthy things like radiation, um, you know, different uh, smoke, various DNA damaging agents are bad, definitely. But, um, you know, even if you do all the right things, <laughs> there is still some <laughs> damage that is happening just from within. Mm. I see. So there's some some damage that is just totally outside your control, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. It could also may have something to do even like with circadian cycles that we talked about because there are some time of day when DNA gets repaired. Uh, so it may be when people don't get enough sleep or, you know, they're disrupted, their circadian cycles at night are disrupted, that may also affect the repair of DNA and epigenome. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, these are all things are tied together. Mm -hmm. So sleep is a big one, making sure that you, your circadian rhythm is um, on point. Are there any other major, really major big ones that people just really need to be aware of? Well, no, I would say these are probably the most, we have the most evidence because we know that um, people that work at night shift, uh, there is very clear health detriment. Mm. People develop more cancers, they age mm. faster. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I'm trying to think <laughs> what other uh, sort of obvious things but, you know, it's mo mostly lifestyle, uh, even stress, right? So excessive stress, psychological mm. stress is also linked to, you know, various epigenetic effects as well. Mm. But right. again, this is something we all know, right? You need to avoid stress uh, as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, stress is a big one. That's one thing I noticed is self-awareness has is huge you know, for knowing that you're stressed. I feel like a lot of us kind of go through life just in a wheel that 
we, I mean, we're not even aware sometimes that we're stressed, you know, that we're showing stress signs um, until our health is affected by the stress, you know, and then we're like, okay, well, we need, I need to like chill out more. But yeah, I, I, I sometimes think about that, like, we go through life just unaware. And, and so just having that self awareness, when you're stressed, the signs that you show when you're stressed, and then just being aware about it allows you to actually do something about it afterwards. Yes, yes, that's true. Um, also, again, these are sort of more <laughs> psychological things. Social connectedness is very important. You know, most centenarians or people who live past 100, they are very well rooted in their communities. They have good family structures. Mm. Oh, yeah, that, that's very important. <laughs> wow. Awesome. So um, besides... Uh, consuming phacoidin, are there anything else that is looking pretty promising to maintain good epigen uh, epigenome structures? Uh, well, so there was some talk about vitamin B12, but that may mm. be too early to mm. say. I think, you know, we need more evidence. Um, I would say at this point, uh, Fucoidin is, I think, pretty much the only one mm. uh, intervention that would be directly targeting epigenetic structure. Mm. Um, of course, we are also looking at uh, gene therapy approaches for CERT6, which would be you know, more powerful, but also there are more risks associated with gene therapy, but that's something we're working on. Um, also, with Fucoidin, what we found that not every uh, isolate of Fucoidin will activate CERT6 the same. It may have to do with like different seaweeds. Uh, it's like, you know, different grasses. They're not all the same. So mm. they're different plant species. Uh, and um, we find that some of them activate, some of them don't. So that's something that we are testing in the lab, different batches mm. of Fucoidin. And we are trying to understand which specific structure is the best. Uh, for activating CERT6. Uh, but I would say other than that, that, I don't think there is kind of a easily accessible way of doing it. Of course, there are people working on developing these pluripotency genes and maybe targeting them directly, but there is nothing yet that you can do yourself. Mm -hmm. I see. That's interesting. There's different types of phacoidin and seaweed, so you want to make sure you're consuming the right one. Is it? Is there anything that you're you know for sure? Like, oh, it has to be organic, or it has to be you know, like um, you know. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we test. We yeah. run by a chemical assay mm -hmm. uh, in the lab where we have CERT six, and we mix it with fucoidin, and we see if it activates it. Um, and uh, we work with do not age companies, so we test their batches, and then they can say, "Well, well, this is not just for coin; this is actually activator of certain six. Um, But other than that, you know, I don't know <laughs> because we really don't know at this point what mm. particular species of algae. Sometimes even like they would tell you, "Okay, the species," but you don't know where they harvested them, in which ocean, and, and there may be also different conditions how these algae were growing uh, that may affect. So the only way we know right now is just our biochemical tests that we do in the lab. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Got it. So you mentioned uh, gene therapy. You know, what does gene therapy look like? And then also what are the risks that you mentioned? Well, gene therapy, it's like you would take like a nanoparticle that would have a gene, sirtuin 6 gene in it. And then it goes into your body and it starts making sirtuin 6 um, which, you know, would be very effective um, if everything works as expected. So right now we are testing it in mice. Mm-hmm. And we want to see that we'll get the same benefit, that it is safe. We expect it to be safe because we know that if you genetically engineer mice to have extra copy of CERT6, they're actually very healthy. It doesn't create any problem, but, you know, gene therapy, it's still sort of developing technology. It's already approved for some life-threatening conditions, like when people are born, for example, missing some immune gene and like they need to be, um, you know, they need to live in a bubble unless they get gene therapy to fix that gene. Uh, but it hasn't yet been approved for something like just augmenting your mm. lifespan. But I think that may happen fairly quickly if um, we can show benefit. Mm. I see. Okay. So I, I heard in some of your um, other interviews, you mentioned the importance of NAD and how sirtuins um uh, NAD is needed for sirtuins. So can you talk a little bit about NAD and its link to sirtuins? Uh, well, so sirtuins use NAD as a cofactor. So mm. to their enzymes, and for enzymes to work, they need another molecule, like they would take a cofactor. They can take, for example, sirtuin-6 can uh, add ribose, like a ring of sugar to other proteins, and it needs to take this ribose from somewhere. So it uses NAD, it takes ribose from NAD and puts it on a target protein. So it needs an AD. Now the question is, um, by consuming an AD, are you going to activate your sirtuin 6? And we don't actually know that because if other sirtuins, for example, sirtuin 1 is very sensitive to an AD. Sirtuin-6 isn't particularly sensitive. It Mm -hmm. needs some NAD, and it's actually very good at binding to NAD and using it. Uh, And it doesn't really matter if you give a little bit more, a little bit less, it will still bind what it needs to. So that's why I don't think NAD supplementation alone is going to have um, significant, make significant difference in activating sirtuin 6 we really need to find specific activators for this protein mm, i see so it's kind of like it's a it's a tool that you know uh sirtuins use but if they don't have that you know like if you increase that it's not going to really help that much yeah that's oh, right yeah. it's not like okay if you don't have that it's probably a problem right. <laughs> but we always have some in our mm-hmm. cells and for sirtuin 6 that's usually enough um, so it's not that we don't have enough sirtuin 6 activity because we we need more nad sirtuin 6 is good at using whatever is available mm-hmm. um, whether nad can benefit by activating other sirtuins there is a lot of research in that area and there is evidence, there was some good evidence obtained that it may help muscle. Mm. Uh, so for muscle aging, there seems to be benefit. 
for overall lifespan extension, not really. There is a, there are many studies that didn't see benefit for lifespan extension. So I think that is still um, the area where you know there is no consensus at this point. Mm -hmm. So, sir, two and six, and you know, there's a number six on it. Is are there? I mean, what are the other numbers, and how many sirtuins are there? Uh, well, there are seven in human, mm. Mm -hmm. and they were just numbered in the order in which they were cloned, so the number doesn't have any particular meaning attached to it. Mm -hmm. uh, sirtuin one was the first one discovered and studied, so it was called one. It doesn't mean it's the most important one. Mm -hmm. um, based on the effects on aging phenotypes in mice, when you you know, when you delete the gene. Uh, the most uh, interesting aging phenotype has sirtuin is this, with sirtuin-6. With sirtuin-1, um, you know, you can, de depending also on the mouse strain, you can delete it and have absolutely no phenotype or you, you have, you could just have dead mice. <laughs> so it's a little bit less connected to aging from that perspective. But with sirtuin-6, you have, if you delete it, you get mice that age very fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and their DNA is very disorganized. Uh, but if you give an extra copy, they live longer. And that's not really the case with any other sirtuins. Mm -hmm. So it, it is the most important one. Out of all the, I would say for aging, yes. You know, mm. they're probably all important for some biological processes, but for mm. aging, I would say sirtuin six is the most important. Right. Have Have people tried cutting the other ones out and just having sirtuin six by itself? No, I mean you need all of them. I mean mm. they each do something in the cell, but uh, with the others, it's not like you give extra and you live longer. Right. <laughs> uh -huh. I see. Interesting. So out of everything that you do, I mean, what are kind of, what is your longevity protocol? You know, like tell me about your diet or your sleep, you know, how many hours you get, you know, uh, do you exercise, you know, tell me about all the things you're doing for yourself um, to increase your longevity. Well, I'm trying to exercise. I don't exercise very vigorously. Um, but I try to walk um, at least, uh, you know, a couple of miles uh, every day. Uh, often I take my dog for a walk in the morning and in the evening. Mm. Um, so, you know, to stay reasonably active, I like swimming. Um, again, we, we talked about diet. Uh, so, yeah, not overeating. I, I love fruits and vegetables and the seaweed whenever I can. <laughs> uh, just trying not to eat too much mm. and avoid uh, you know, these heavy carbohydrates and like grain products. I mean, I eat a little bit of grain, but just I, I know that it doesn't make me feel good. So I'm mm. trying to minimize it and eat more vegetables and fruits instead of grains. Um, Sleep, you know, that's a difficult one because I'm just, 
<laughs> I, I don't sleep very well. I mm. try to get enough sleep, but it's not always possible. But I think it's a good idea to at least have seven to eight hours. Mm -hmm. Got it. And, and I, I'm trying, you know, also with the uh, to only eat during daytime. Mm. I don't eat at night ever. <laughs> Got it. What's well, kind of like your cutoff time, like 5 p.m.? Uh, no, that would be, of course, nice. But no, it's more, I, I would say probably 7 or 8. <laughs> okay. Awesome. And um, when you exercise, how often are you exercising? No, every day, but, oh. uh, you know, moderately. Moderately, yeah. That's that's cool. Um, and then as far as, you know, foods, uh, you mentioned fruit, vegetables, seaweed a couple things about that um are you eating like organic fruits and vegetables or yes i'm trying whenever mm -hmm. possible and this is you know i think that is not just longevity it's a general <laughs> health recommendation because there are so many pesticides and herbicides that uh, we don't want <laughs> in our diet. Uh, so, of course, organic vegetables is the best. And I, I I completely avoid anything that has food colorings in it or various mm. preservatives. Okay, sometimes, of course, if you are at a function and you just eat whatever you know, is put in front of you, but mm -hmm. whenever I'm in control of what I'm eating, I would not eat anything that has uh, food color, mm -hmm. uh, preservatives and stuff like that. Right. So um, earlier you mentioned berries. Are there any like specific types of fruits and vegetables you're really targeting or is it kind of a wide variety? Um, variety is good, but uh, I, I like uh, blueberries, raspberries and blackberries. So all those sort of more wild uh, mm -hmm. berries because, um, you know, there is some thinking that um, all of these plants that are you know, more on the wilder side. So they are not as susceptible to, for example, pests and insects because they're producing various molecules to ward off um, those pests and diseases. And the same molecules are like spices for the same matter, like they have these molecules. Um, and when humans consume it, it, they can induce mild hermetic effect on you. So we are very good at dosing ourselves like with a little bit of you know, spice and herb uh, because what gives herbs their aroma, these are again, those molecules that may be uh, evolved there to ward off insects and fungi <laughs> diseases. Uh, so that, you know, not sometimes, it's difficult to exactly isolate, okay, what is the compound, although we have some, um, you know, different polyphenol fractions and uh, like whatever gives color to blue color uh, plants. Uh, we know that those compounds have benefits, but also it's a combination like everything together in the plant, in the fruit. Mm. strawberries are also good if they are organic because those that are not organic they, there is a, too much um, pesticide in them um, another thing that you know people don't realize but I think it's important to avoid the artificial sweeteners mm. because people would think oh I will take diet coke mm. and this way you know I'm not uh, consuming <laughs> sugar <laughs> and this is a very bad idea because <laughs> artificial sweeteners are really bad <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. 
And then um, the seaweed, is there a particular like brand that you're pretty confident about or you just have done research in and you're like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll stick with this one. No, we are testing for do, for do not age companies. So mm -hmm. uh, we tested it in the lab. We gave it to mice. We know that our mice live longer if they eat it. Mm. Um, I mean, this is not to say there are probably other phocoidins that are just as good, but you, you just never know because right. we see about 30% of batches activate CIRT6 and 30% don't. Wow. Okay. Wait, I you mean, said... 70% don't. 70 yeah. Um, so that's what I could recommend for Foucault. But again, if you just get some seaweed and make soup with it, that's also good and you can't go wrong. Mm -hmm. gotcha. and maybe, maybe it won't activate your cert six as much, but it's healthy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. So just to wrap up here, um, what are... Like if you had to summarize, you know, we talked about so many different topics here, but if you have to summarize the most high impact things that people can do for their longevity, um, you know, what would you say in addition to eat seaweed? Yeah, eat seaweed first. <laughs> Second, a healthy diet full of fruits and vegetables. Um, you know, eating at the right time, moderate exercise, uh, keeping uh, good. Um, sleep routine and uh, uh, you know, maintaining, taking care of your circadian cycle. Um, another thing that you can disrupt your cycles completely is when people, I mean, something wakes you up at night and you turn the lights on mm -hmm. and it doesn't take too much to for your brain, to, like all the receptors in your eyes to then think, oh, it's daytime. Mm. And it will change everything. So if you have to get up at night, you just you have to try to keep the lights very low. Mm. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on, Dr. Gorbanova. This has been a real pleasure. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people will learn from you. How can people support you and the work that you do? Well, you know, I'm always open for suggestions so people can write to me. Um, you know, you can Google me easily. My email is on the web and I'm always open to different ideas, collaboration, support, whatever. Awesome. Any particular uh, link or um, place, you know, people can go to, you know, uh, learn more about what you do that you want to promote? Oh, well, there is a website for my laboratory. But if you just, uh, you know, Google Vera Garbunova aging, <laughs> it will bring you there. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And I will see you in the next episode. Bye now. Okay, thank you. My pleasure.